Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to season six of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the wonderful Dr. Sally Penny, MBE, barrister at law, doctor of laws, author and speaker. Sally is a barrister at Kenworthy Chambers, practicing criminal, GDPR, data protection and employment law. She has been appointed to the list of counsel for the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Sally is also a radio broadcaster and diversity leader. Additionally, Sally is the proud founder of Women in Law UK, a non-organisation inspiring all women and men passionate about diversity in the law. So a very, very warm welcome, Sally. Oh, wow, Robert. Thank you so much for inviting me. You've had such amazing guests on here. I listen to this podcast regularly, uh, usually when I'm out with the dog or driving to court. So uh, I feel really honoured to be invited on this brilliant, brilliant podcast. And it's weird to think about all those things you read out are actually me. Uh, And and that's not all of them. So we're equally (laughs) honoured to have you, Sally. There's, uh, I mean, it's an endless list of achievements. And I guess before we go through all your amazing projects experiences, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, you know, uh, I'm at the bar and maybe we're a bit more pessimistic. I'd probably say five. It's not an area. I'm not American. I practice in English law. Uh, but I mean, I, I'd ra- I rate it 10 on enjoyment. On reality, probably a bit less, I'm afraid. Uh, probably five and less, which might be a bit unkind. But uh, on entertainment value, uh, I think it's, a, it's probably 10. But on, yeah, on the reality, fair. yeah, I think that's fair. I don't want to be mean, but, you know, uh, y- you wouldn't. It's fraud to lie about qualifications. <laughs> this is true. This is true. And if you don't know what Sally's reference is, go and check out Suits because there's entertainment there in abundance. Yeah. And five is a fair score. We split the pack. But let's start okay. at the beginning of this incredible journey, Sally. Would you mind telling our listeners a bit about your background and journey? Um, well, gosh, um, well, I'm the produce of two non-lawyers um, who were, uh, you know, immigrants who came to England to study um, and uh, they didn't know any lawyers and they certainly didn't approve of lawyers. So that was never in their dream for me. And uh, and they wanted me actually to go down the medical route. I didn't take my place to read medicine. And, and the main reason was I used to read um, the Rumpole of the Bailey books uh, written by John Mortimer and they were then um, made into television programs which I was then later allowed to watch and uh, and if for people who are so obviously much younger than me uh, like you uh, Rumpole was sort of a large white man graying in hair he used to drink at lunchtime I don't do that uh, and uh, and he acted for all sorts of characters um, in in the program, defending them at the Old Bailey. And it was a really quite entertaining character. But it was all about fair fairness and justice and, and truth, if you like. So an early version of um, Suits, it, it, you know, Suits a modern version of that type of idea. Television has a way of inspiring 
young people. And so um, I didn't do medicine. I read law. Um, I found it very hard after law because I was a top student, if you like. My parents were like, you're black and you're a woman. You need to work hard. And so, you know, I, I couldn't have got a job uh, in um, I don't know, Sainsbury's or whatever. Uh, well, I could have done. I have had a job in Sainsbury's, but that wouldn't have been enough. It, it was always education was a path that they cherished and had big dreams. And I'm one of five. I'm the eldest. And so I did find law hard. I didn't know anybody. I wrote many applications for pupillage, which is a training part um, there. And uh, for me, uh, unlike some of my colleagues whom I studied with, who were also looking for pupillage, who were, you know, white women and white guys, they never even got interviews, um, you know, for training places. I would always get down to the last two and there would be me and somebody who didn't look like me. Um, and I didn't have a chip on my shoulder, but I didn't notice it as time went on and then I wouldn't get it. So I wrote a lot of applications, both formally and then um, the, through the CV post. And then I did pupillage. Um, I got pupillage um, not that far since I finished bar school, actually, uh, and started my career in Bristol um, doing a common law pupillage, which was a bit of everything, um, you know, crime, family. I used to do family work. Uh, employment and, and so on. So it wasn't an, an early, it wasn't an easy route. There was no silver spoon. There was no kind of, you know, uh, bank of mum and dad or a friend. You know, I had a loan. Um, and um, my journey, if you like, I think is probably like most people now, um, you know, quite hard, but having to learn things like resilience, not giving up, picking oneself up, you know, when you get millions of rejection letters, um, even after the interview, um, and finding ways to use some of the skills that perhaps, you know, people don't tell you and some of the jobs that uh, a bit rubbish or you think are a bit rubbish at the time, like cutting out, you know, law reports in the Chambers Library. But actually that being very helpful in a pupillage scholarship interview um, to recount those, you know what I mean? You know, nowadays I think there's an app, isn't there, that cuts out newspaper cuttings for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, <laughs> about 20 years ago. So sorry, that was a bit of a long prolong, but I, I wouldn't want people to think I've had, you know, some indulgent life. I've worked very hard um, to try and get somewhere and to try and have a message that if I can do it, then other people can too. That's inspiring in itself. And I appreciate the, the realness of, of that, because I think nowadays we live in a, a society where it's uh, there's so much social media, there's so much noise, there's so much around people thinking that success comes easily. And there is yes. no substitute for hard work. And, you know, yeah. what you said there, you know, rejection is just redirection and how you were resilient and you carried on going to the next one, the next one. There's a real learning in there for people, you know, in whatever you're trying to do, whatever career you're trying to aspire for, you know, just go for it. And as long as you do not give up, you will be successful. So really appreciate you sharing that. And that tenacity and that resilience has obviously led you to be highly successful in what you you have achieved. And obviously as a barrister, you touched on it there. You've done many, many areas of law from employment, data protection, mm. criminal, you name it. Do you have a preferred area per se of law that you most like to practice well you know it's an interesting question because you know people like adam wagner um would call themselves human rights barristers but they wouldn't say they were crime but they might deal with the human right you know the detention the unlawful detention of a young person well i deal in that area but i would call it criminal law or common yes. law whereas actually the language we use in the areas have changed a lot i don't know about preference because you know 
I've always been a jury advocate uh, and I've always specialized in you know, vulnerable people, complex cases, complex crime, but equally employment in discrimination cases. So I don't know if I've got a preference as such. I think the skill set in my area, you know, I've been called for 23 years as a barrister, was that we did common law pupillages. Nowadays, the encouragement is very specialised. You know, you're either doing just pure civil, personal injury, clinical negligence, family law, just contact, you know, private family law or public family, all of those things. Uh, and as, as the areas are changing, I do think there's a skill in being able to adapt with the changes that come. So if I suppose if I had a preference, I'll always be a, a criminal advocate. I'll always be an advocate in that way, yes. even though, you know, some of my work now involves, you know, prosecuting people for data protection breaches um, uh, and for, um, you know, breaches of, of GDPR and representing those who have breached um, them. That's still crime, but it's regulatory crime. Um, yes. So, yeah, I, I I, I suppose I love being an advocate, um, and so I'll always be that. But, yeah, uh, probably a crim criminal advocate. I'm not sure about preference. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, again, you gave so many little nuggets there um, within that, and I can just hear the passion in your voice for what you, you do, which is which is lovely to hear. So a two-part question. What does a typical okay. day of a barrister look like? And then what does a typical day look like for Sally, given you're involved in so many things? So let's go <laughs> to point number one, a typical day for a barrister. Uh, well, a typical day for, for a, a barrister. So let's say whether it's uh, for a criminal barrister, maybe I'll say an employment barrister, but generally arriving at court very early. I was always taught that by my brilliant pupil master. He used to say, get somewhere early, find a hotel and order a pot of tea. And I'm like, what? At seven o'clock in the morning. Um, but I, I don't quite do that because I've got children. But I, I, ideally, I would have dropped off my children um, at school. My husband's not a stay-at-home husband. So, you know, I'm in a, 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 a relationship where we're both um, equal with our jobs so um, children are taken care of um, three of them in school dropped off ideally by me because I get brownie points if not I will arrive at court very early um, I tend to get grab a coffee en route um, I would have prepared my papers the night before if not beforehand get to court early robing room get robed um, and then reread the, the case I've got and, and prepared uh, if I'm lucky and it's a good day I would be reading a copy of newspaper in the robing rooms that if they're still there depending on where I am often barristers have to travel to different destinations the introduction of the common of the common platform which is CVP and uh, using the technology um, was working, but it, it's sort of been redacted somewhat in different jurisdictions, certainly in mine, so it's physical court work. And then if it's a I'm conducting a trial, I would then be waiting, if I'm prosecuting, to go to see if the witnesses are there, introduce myself, hello, I'm Miss Penny, whatever, with the uh, my instructing solicitor or caseworker there. And then court would normally start about 10 o'clock or 10.30. Um, and then I would open a case. If it's a trial, we'll panel a jury. Um, there should be discussion about the areas of law. And then I would open the case and then start calling witnesses. That would run till one o'clock, which is lunchtime. And the court will start again at two o'clock or 2.15. Then we would then sit after two o'clock, two fifteen, until um, about five o'clock, and that will be the end of the court day. Um, if it's I'm defending, then there's a lot more time spent with the client. 
um, going through their case. Um, sometimes clients are not the best people in keeping appointments. Uh, and so I would be going over the proof of evidence, preparing them for what the court uh, room would look like, what questions might come. But you know, just briefly, because a lot of ordinary people have not been to court before. And um, if I may, um, so that they get a feel of what the courtroom might be like, maybe a sneaky preview to have a look through where the judge would sit, where the jury might sit, where they will be in the dock um, uh, and so on. And then they would remain in, in the court. At lunchtime, I would have a coffee. Sometimes I'm not very good at eating. Whilst I'm in a trial, I might just grab a coffee with my solicitor if I've got one there. Um, or um, my new thing I've been trying to do since lockdown is just leave the court physically and go walk around the court building. Um, there. If it's an employment case, it's a bit different. So it might be, it might be against counsel who's from out of town, and trying to work out what you know what witnesses are really are relevant, um, and whether the case is prone for settlement, um, or any areas that we can agree on or disagree on. And then again, the case would start from ten, stop for lunch, and then um, restart. So far as your second question about what the day is like for me, um, is that because I have a family. And because I have family commitments, actually the coffee breaks and, and so on, um, I, I'm not really sitting around uh, chatting. I am often on the phone, whether it's arranging hospital appointments or a food shop or whatever else um, in between. Um, and then we get called called back on. Um, so that's what I tend to do. But these days I tend to do a trial then maybe have a, a week off and then the week off would be um, preparing for whether it's board meetings or some of the other roles that I have or school governor roles um, and so on. So I don't tend to do trial after trial after trial after trial anymore, um, which is what I used to do. Yeah. And again, that leads quite nicely on to most memorable case to date. And I appreciate it may be very hard to narrow down to one. So if it's difficult, maybe just some themes. But yeah, some of your memorable cases that sort of come to mind. Wow. Well, do you know that there, uh, it's a great question because um, it, it's not always a high profile cases, which might be in newspapers. Um, you know, yeah. they're difficult cases and different pressures apply to those for different reasons. But um uh, it's a little cases with the little people. So uh, if I may, number one is a case I did actually, gosh, over 20 years ago, pro bono. And it was a criminal injuries compensation for a young woman who had been sexually assaulted. And um, the case was never prosecuted. It was reported, but it was never prosecuted. And I actually wanted to JR it. Um, the decision not to prosecute in those days, actually, but we didn't have any money. Uh, but that's another story. So I, we brought a claim for criminal injuries compensation, and she had her own um, difficulties, neurodiverse difficulties, and she lived with um, with a granny. So um, the papers were sort of brought to me in a bit of a, you know, uh, Aldi bag flimsy very heavy uh and uh and then i had to sort of put it all together you know draft schedules it was hours of work um and it was just before i was on my feet i think i was still in my first six actually and then we had to go to london to the you know to appeal court and i have to say i was dreading it you know talk about advocacy i was like oh my god you know this is a big leave for court anyway we won and um we won a lot of money for that uh for that young woman you know she was under 18 and uh, she wanted to go to college and um, 
that stays with me because it, it really reminds me of why I wanted to become a barrister as I am or a lawyer, that sense of justice and writing and unfairness and a wrong. Um, and she writes to me from time to time uh, again, um, now and again to my old chambers who forward it up, up here, um, just saying how she's doing and she's, you know, a grown woman now. So that always stays with me because it shows the power of, uh, of doing good and the power of the law and what we can all do. And the second case is a cleaner who I represented was dismissed unfairly because she saw the boss, I can't say too much, the boss having an affair with somebody else in the firm. So she was subjected to all sorts of um, detrimental treatment and then dismissed unfairly. And um, uh, we brought a claim. And if I may say so, she was a very, very elderly lady. And it was the only way she could get out of the house. She, I wouldn't say she was the best cleaner in the world, but she had all sorts of stories. And uh, that cleaning job was her life. You know, she loved the people there. It got her out. And uh, anyway, we, we won her claim, which was really, really good. And, and that stays with me because she will be about, oh God, 96 or something now. And it's the little people. I think it's those cases. Yes, the high profile cases, you know, where people have been incarcerated and accused of all sorts of crimes. And then, you know, the trial comes and it's difficult, it's prolonged, and then they're acquitted. Of course they are. Or the vulnerable cases, which are historic abuse cases and then you've got to bring the cases again and you're prosecuting the pressures on you you've got to cross-examine you know the individual it might be a family member yes they are memorable cases but it's for me it's been those the, the, the little cases uh, particularly the earlier parts of my career which have stayed with me yeah, and it's so so great that you you, you touch on those because it is those ones that probably don't get that mass public yeah. you know, media attention that that means so much more to you because you know it's 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 almost it's it's business but it's personal. And I love that you yeah. you shared that story about the cleaner. It sounds like I probably don't want that cleaner for my house, but they're a very good person <laughs> and they uh, deserved everything they've got. And I guess moving moving on because you do do so many things, um, Sally, and you are a, a bencher at Grey's Inn, master of the bench. So can you tell us more about that and what that involves? Yeah, well, um, each uh, every barrister has to belong to an inn. There are four inns uh, in England. Grey's, which I am a member of, is the smallest, Lincoln's, Middle Temple and Inner Temple. And um, what happens is it's a, it's a governing role. It's a bit like being a Ned, I suppose. And the benchers are ready in the inns who are very senior lawyers, barristers, judges, um, uh, uh, and it, it doesn't include solicitors. The employed bar are, are who are barristers working in house, but they then elect individuals for, to govern the inn uh, for the and make sure that the inn is run properly and can contribute um, to the inn. And so um, I was elected uh, by Grazing. I don't know who nominated or but everybody has to vote I think is how you get in uh, and I was quite shocked because I'm relatively young but uh, uh, I, and so I did have you know imposter syndrome hugely because um, especially Grey's Inn has some mighty mighty benches you know um, uh, uh, the notorious Ruth Badger Ginsburg uh, was an honorary bencher of Grey's Inn um, Lady Hale um, is a, a bencher of Grey's Inn. There's a huge amount, you know, Kirsty Brimlow, really big brains in, in Britain. Uh, and so it, it was an honour. And then, of course, you have to accept. And I did think, crikey, what are they 
want me for? And so that role actually involves being involved in the educational part of the inn as well, teaching advocacy, um, being involved in sort of the decisions of the inn, how to make the inn more egalitarian, uh, showcasing that the inn and the profession is inclusive and diverse. Um, and so I've been involved in those aspects of it and also just ensuring that the tomorrow's leaders, when they look at the leaders that there are, that they're representative, that you do see women um, and you do see people from all sorts of backgrounds in leadership positions. So that's been a very interesting um, role. Uh, and actually in the inn, everybody calls you master, even if you're a woman or a man or, you know, whatever it would, you would be master Hannah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's no mistress or miss or anything. It's just everyone's equal. So I'm master Penny, um, there. It's got a good ring to it. I yeah. like that. Um, <laughs> I quite like master Hannah as well, actually. So, uh, one day, who knows, who knows? And I guess sticking with diversity, because I know it's something you're very passionate about and, you know, you don't just talk about it, you take action. So you're the very proud founder of Women in the Law UK, where you are championing diversity in the law. So what particularly inspired you to found the organisation and what would you like members to gain from joining? Oh, thank you. That's such a great question. Wow. Well, firstly, there are so many brilliant other organisations. You know, there's Association of Women Barristers, which I was um, joint vice chair of. There's Association of Women Solicitors. There's Women in Criminal Law now. There's all sorts of women organisations. But for me at the time, when I had my eldest child, who's now 12, uh, and came back to work, it was a shock because, you know, I didn't have anybody to say, you know, you're going to need a people carrier now because I went on to have two other children. So you have to, you know, diss your small car. Um, and there weren't sort of, I felt for me, the skills that I was good at, the advocacy, the, dra the drafting, particulars, all of those kind of lawyer skills, fine. I did feel like, oh my God, do I know what I'm doing? Because you've had a baby, you'd be on maternity leave, right? But the other skills... No one really taught you like communication, like negotiation, like how not to burn out. Um, and there wasn't anybody really doing that in a way for me that I felt wasn't preachy, um, wasn't a bit sort of sanctimonious. Um, I just wanted to go somewhere. Sounds cheesy, but where everyone knows your name, there's no cliques. You can just come and learn. So I was inspired to set that up really, for women and men, because I think a lot of the issues we cover, and those of men come to our stuff, are the same. You know, there are things about communication skills, imposter syndrome, you know, how how does one become an ally on what? What is an ally? You know, some of the broader issues. And I wanted to learn, you know, I'm a sucker for learning um, constantly. So I set that up so that we could have an informal setting. It started off in an annual dinner, actually, and we'd invite a speaker who would inspire us. And maybe whilst you're at this event, you might think about career progression as well, for example, and then work out how you might become a partner in a law firm or how you might set up your own law firm. Um, and so there were some of the sort of reasons, really, uh, and because I didn't see a lot of the profession as it is now. It's now wonderfully diverse with people from all sorts of ethnically diverse backgrounds, but also people from all sorts of technical background, you know, ideologies, different skill set, different routes into the profession. And so that's why I set it up. And I just wanted to learn some of the other skills in business, you know, like resilience. What is resilience, right? How do you have a difficult conversation? 
we're not we're not taught that you know a bar school why be taught negotiation skills where you end up screaming down the throat of your colleague who you've got on well with but that's not negotiation and so I, I just wanted to maybe create a model that was comfortable and we could learn stuff like you know recruiters what do recruiters look for when they're looking to place a solicitor in a firm or an in-house firm what is in-house you know actually is it better suited for people with families or caring responsibilities to become gcs or in-house counsel and i didn't feel there was a place that was offering some of those so that's why i set it up um and really so that tomorrow's um leaders have somewhere to learn those in a different sort of way to complement all the existing brilliant organizations that there are really so um that's what i've been doing and it's now got 25,000 followers you can be a member or not um and it's been a wonderful place to also meet trainers and coaches who can assist people down the line who might need those you know i always say remember when andy uh, murray was trying to win wimbledon then he got that brilliant coach his name escapes me now whatever that coach gave him sometimes i think that we all need that and sometimes for us whether as women or maybe as ethnically diverse people sometimes it's confidence we lack that confidence and if things like coaches or other people can inspire us to have more confidence then why not you know that's all i'm trying to do i i love that cuz i've always said if you could bottle up confidence and give it to people to drink honestly this world would be incredible it would just that hidden yeah. talent to encourage those people to come out with their and exhaust their talents would be phenomenal so who knows we'll, yeah. we'll try and put our brains together and and make that happen Time for a quick break from the show. You wouldn't leave a potential client waiting in your office for three days. But what about when it comes to returning potential clients, phone calls, emails, or even web inquiries? If you're not responding rapidly to those who inquire about your firm's services, you could be losing money, losing clients, and affecting your law firm's reputation. Thankfully, there's a resource from our sponsor, Clio, that can help you called how to grow your firm with legal client intake it's a free guide that will show you exactly how and why you should be automating your client intake process download your free copy at clio.com forward slash uk forward slash free intake guide that's clio c-l-i-o.com forward slash uk forward slash three intake guide now back to the show Sticking with, you know, the Women in Law UK, because, you know, you talk so passionately about it and 25,000 followers doesn't come overnight. So, again, building communities takes a lot of time, energy and effort outside of obviously what you're doing for the day job. Yeah. But you also, within Women in Law UK, hold well-being sessions. Yes. So do you think there is a significant need for legal professionals to learn the importance of well-being? And if so, why? Wow, that's a big question, actually, and a very good question. I, I think, and, you know, personally, um, we're in a profession that is high pressured. You know, we're acting for people's lives. We're acting for companies which people have built. Um, and even in my jurisdiction, there are people's liberties are at stake. Yeah, you know, it's not an easy, easy job. And even in business law and, you know, your areas, I, I think it's high pressured and the hours are long and there is scope for burnout. There are weeks where literally I'm just surviving on coffee. Um, you know, get home, feed the children, make sure they go to their activities. And then you're back just doing, you know, 
preparing the next day, you know, the next day's case. So before you know it, it's Saturday. Saturday is the same. You've not had a weekend. You go to court, people say, what did you do at the weekend? And you're scratching your head thinking, well, yeah, I took my son to the football game uh, or my daughter to ballet, but um, actually I've just spent the entire weekend drafting and writing openings. So I think well-being is important because if we are not in tip-top shape, we'll make errors. That's the number one thing. Secondly, we need to look after ourselves. There's that saying, isn't there, about oxygen mask on first on the aeroplane, yeah, before you can help anybody. And I just don't think we are good at it. I think the law is such that we don't think about it. That's not the first thing we think about. We're not thinking, you know, actually we're getting knackered and we're just living off pizzas or coffees or fags or whatever. I just don't think we are. As a profession, I think we need to revisit it because look, we've been in a pandemic, haven't we? for over two years. Law firms are struggling to, not just law firms, we know civil servants, businesses, to get people back physically into offices. Now, you might have different things to say about that, flexible working. I have too. But the reality is, people have looked at their well-being. We know there's a great resign. It's not because people don't need money. We're going into a recession. But they're looking at how they can manage their careers and their lives better in a much more well-being, wellness sort of way. Yeah. And we talk about work-life balance, but what does that really mean? And I think as a profession, we need to do it. I know judges who have resigned because, um, I forget her name now, I think it's Judge Conway, because of well-being, they want better well-being, right? Um, that's nothing to do with the support that might be there. They just want a more of a rounded approach. And the reason people aren't going back into the offices full time is that they're quite content to go in two days a week. And do the rest of the work from home because it's better for their well-being and their wellness. And I do think we need to think about that and deal with it better. Because also, you know, sickness costs billions to the economy and to firms. When you've got people who are off ill because they burn out or they're sick, that's expensive. So we do have to deal with it. It's not just a nice, it's not a moral argument for me. I think we need to look after ourselves and we've got to force it. And in, in lockdown, and now we still have those well-being sessions, women in the law, the virtual people join us from all over the country and, you know, all over the world, you know, Australia, Canada. Um, it gives people a release. And we do have a professional counsellor who can take people aside, who leads it. We have a psychologist who leads it. Um, they take it in turns. But people do need to be asked, how are you doing? You know, how are you feeling? What's your week been like? And have a, a place confidentially to talk to other people. So I do think as a profession, yes, we need to invest in well-being. We need to invest in well-being for the judges, for lawyers, for solicitors and for the bar because we can't all afford to burn out. I, I think, you know, and there will be nobody to do the jobs. And young people, Robert, pupils and the young people that I see Young doctors, I was told this by a doctor friend the other day, they're quite happy to be paid less and have more time. Well, that's the one thing we can't get back, yeah. time. So, you know, uh, the, the reality is, and I, I love that you, you you talk about that so openly, because I say self-care is a strength, not a weakness. Yeah. I think to have the courage to look after yourself first and see that as a strength so you can be even more of an asset to your clients or your community, verving suffering in silence, which is a weakness, but having the right people around you who can help you, who support you so you don't suffer. That's really important because I want people to know that self-care is not 
a bad yeah. thing. It's important. Yeah. And, you know, we, we're humans. We all have stresses, worries, imposter syndrome. You've spoken openly about that yourself, achieving roles that you thought, wow, I wouldn't expect this for years. Yeah. And so it's it's so important that we have thought leaders like you that come on who speak openly and also say this is important. Yeah. This is not a tick in the box. This is important because we don't want burnout. And people spend a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of sacrifice to get into these roles, and we want them to enjoy yeah. it. So really appreciate you sharing that and it's just a testament to you as a as an individual and your values and i guess sticking with successes in 2021 a little birdie told me you were recognized in the queen's birthday honors for your services to diversity in the workplace social mobility and the law i mean that is an amazing achievement how did it feel when you were awarded the mbe oh gosh uh well successes well firstly Actually, because um, <clears throat> it's all very secretive and I don't think we're, we're at liberty to discuss how it all happens. I don't know how it happened. I just got an email because it was in lockdown. So it was in 2020. Then you can't tell anyone. You're not even your mum. Uh, and then uh, and then that's it. So you just forget about it. You just forget about it. And then, then it's announced. And then people were like, email me saying, you're in the Times. You're in the Times. And I'm like, uh, yeah, thank you. Because you don't know when it's going to come out. So uh, the short answer is, I was absolutely thrilled, but shocked. Totally no idea who nominated me, where it came from or whatever. Um, uh, but the small part of me was just that I was so pleased that it meant that some of the work that I've been doing for young people, speaking in schools and saying, you know, anyone can be a lawyer. The lawyer this is, a, you know, the, the law is a tool we can use was a good thing. You know, maybe it inspired others to think about careers in law, different types of law, not just the areas that maybe I prefer or enjoy. Um, so I, I did think, oh my God, I think, I, you know, I thought it was a joke to be quite honest with you and deleted the email and it was sent several times before <laughs> I thought, oh crikey, um, it is it is really real um, uh, when it came. And then when I received it, um, it was um, Her Royal Highness Princess Margaret um, Princess Anne, um, because uh, Her Majesty was um, unwell and it was COVID and, and so on. And, and I was so nervous and even waiting to get in, I was sweating. I still did feel that imposter. I thought somebody was going to come and say, Sally Penny. And it, do you know, and weirdly, it was before <laughs> I wrote any of my books even. So, um, and, and, and in the palace, when you walk in, people just say to you, congratulations, congratulations and you think but you don't know me you don't know what I've done so it, it was an honor and um, Princess Anne was wonderful you know she's a hard-working royal um, and was asking about what inspired me and you know we had a, a little laugh and um, I, I was so nervous you know I think I was more nervous than my call night um, uh, actually all those years ago but it was lovely and it was lovely for my family because when you have to give more than just a day job to try and better you know um, uh, the future for others. There come sacrifices. You know, I am working late at night to finish my books. I am getting up really early to prepare my cases. I am travelling to speak at Warwick University or, you know, going to Oxford to talk to young women about not dropping out or, or whatever. Uh, and so it was nice. And I do th hope that, you know, 
my work and the sort of giving extra, other people feel they can do the same and can inspire other young people because it's not really a stopgap. It's just, I'm really delighted to have it, but I've just carried on doing what I'm doing, to be quite honest. Um, And I never expected anything for it. And, you know, it really pleases me when people text and say, DM, and I've got, you know, I listen to this or I read this, or I heard you speak of this, and now I'm a lawyer. I think, oh my God, you know, somebody who was 14 and did bar mock trials has now become a barrister. I think, wow, well done, and keep going. So it was a great honour, but I've just tried to carry on, and I was totally shocked. (laughs) Well, I don't think I'm shocked. I think you've thoroughly deserved it. You earned your absolute right to be at the table. And congratulations from all of us on the show. I think it's an amazing achievement. And sow seeds, do good deeds, good things happen. And you did touch on, and we have to, because you are multi-talented, your book, you, or books, plural, I should say, you are the author of several books now. So can you tell us more about your books and uh, why are you keen to share your knowledge through writing um well thank you robert well do you know my legal books um were about cyber security because particularly at that time people were finding it hard to work out how the gdpr worked and you know the old data protection act as it was um prior to gdpr came in um that was sort of my first book from for bloomsbury but i mean i'm keen to write about law start firstly because um I wanted to make law more accessible for people. Uh, and in times like the pandemic or, you know, when people are sort of at the darkest hours facing unemployment, pregnant, not knowing their rights, you know, they're asking for reasonable adjustments or keeping in touch days and whatever. And sometimes the employers themselves are not afraid with it. I-, I wanted to just write so people can just pick up a relatively, you know, thin manual uh, or book and think, right, I get that. I can at least do the basics or I can go to my employer and say, actually, you're supposed to be doing this. Um, and, and so I wanted to make the law a, a little bit more accessible so far as my legal books are concerned. And law books are expensive. I just wanted them to be affordable. You know, before people make an error uh, in the, uh, particularly employers and they go down the wrong line and it ends up costing them a lot of money, maybe they might read some of my books and think, okay, there's a point there. And for people who are feeling isolated, vulnerable times, they can at least know their rights in a basic way. So that was the first reason for the law books. The other books that I write, which are the Talking Law series books, which are like Talking Law and Careers, Talking Law and Skills, um, and so on. They're for aspiring lawyers. I didn't know any lawyers when I was growing up and wanted to become a barrister. And I just felt that if I knew some or read about the stories of some, it would really help me what they might have done, how they got to where they were, um, then they would help. So um, I started writing th- that series of books and the money from those books go to charity. So I hope you don't mind me talking about them. But people have found comfort in them that you can flick through and think, well, if I'm growing up on a council estate, uh, then actually that person is now venture in something or another or as a QC, then I can do it. And so that's why I wanted to write those books and get the contributions of kind of experts, you know, CVs, what should your CV look like? Careers, can you plan for a career? Can you be flexible? Some of those issues. So there's some of the reasons, um, uh, some of the books, I mean, I've written 16 books now, but um, they were some of the books that I write. And I know you're going to ask me about the children's book because you've got Otto, your beautiful son. (laughs) 
Yes, I was going to say, you and your, so for context, during the pandemic, you and your daughter Maddie wrote Rosie and the Unicorn. Yeah. So this was to raise money for the NHS and celebrate your diverse local community. So what did you enjoy most about writing the book with your daughter? And did you expect to get such recognition featuring in the news? With no, not at all. And let me tell you, Robert, I mean, I, your son's not old enough yet for homeschooling, but I hope you don't ever have to do it. Uh, in the pandemic, it was difficult, you know, trying to work and homeschool three children. And and my daughter, especially, because, you know, she's not going to sit for hours on end and do any work that I'm setting like her and to be quiet. I'm on a web, you know, I'm on a webinar or I'm on, on with court on DCS. Um, so that that's why that arose. What I enjoyed writing about it, and I never thought it would go anywhere. I just wanted us to raise money. Was then the teachers then didn't contact me again to say, you've not uploaded any piece of work today on the school system <laughs> because when they had got that phone call we wrote the book and then the book came out and they saw it uh, um on the news they never then ever asked me again i thought i think my job is done but what i enjoyed about it was sort of the ability to be young again and think you know oh i wouldn't mind a unicorn to make everything all right and you know the powers of a unicorn is something sparkly um uh that that was nice and it was a nice thing for us because you know if you're uh, anybody who's got siblings, the attention perhaps isn't always uh, there, if, especially if you're number three. So that that was a really nice thing to do. And, you know, and that series has carried on. It's on book three of book four now. Um, but also it gave me the opportunity again to sneak in a bit of law and sneak in a bit of motivation for, you know, primary school children to think about careers early on and not to feel that nothing is out of their reach, you know, that they can all reach for the stars. So it, it gave me the opportunity to be a big kid again um, and, uh, and dream about um, unicorns. And it has raised a lot of money for the charities and, um, and, you know, and we've carried on, you know, I've written one with, with my son too and the dog because I'm a dog lover. Uh, but I never expected anyone to be interested, you know, BBC News, Five Live, all these um, other books. But I suppose it, one of the things you said it earlier about me is that I think there's an awful lot of reports about gender, ba gender pay gap or the ethnic gap or, you know, the development or lack of progression of women in, in um in the law or in businesses, I, I think we just need action. We need to implement them. So when I thought there aren't enough books, which have got people who are from all sorts of backgrounds, I felt I should write one. Um, when I thought there isn't enough about the contributions of, you know, minorities in Britain to the country, I wrote a black history book. Um, you know, I, I'm a bit of a doer like that. That's not to say that the other means aren't useful. I, I just prefer to sort of try and, do what I can in in the ways that perhaps uh, I can um, uh, in that sort of way. So I hope that answers that question. Sorry, it was a bit of a wisher on. It, it does, most definitely. And I love that you talk about, you know, because like much within the law, you can identify the problem. Yeah. That's not good enough. You need to also identify the solution or go and find a solution. And that's brilliant that you did that. And I love that it brought out your inner <laughs> child and, you know, you, you got to experience that. And it's, it's, it's just wonderful. And I guess talking of sort of, you know, unicorns and even role models and shooting for the stars in your feature of the council magazine, you spoke about your role model, Helena Kennedy QC. 
So could you explain more why she is your Oh, role? well, do you know, oh, well, Baroness Kennedy, as she is, who's a, a, bar- a QC at Doughty Street. Um, well, she's Scottish from Glasgow. She's got three kids. And she represented Myra Hindley, actually, in one of the trials. And I think, latterly, Julian Assange. Her story was just amazing. You know, she's, she's become a QC, which is sort of the pinnacle of our career. I'm a senior junior. I'm not quite a, a QC yet. But she has acted in cases and used her platform, I suppose, in a different way than I have. You know, she sits in the House of Lords. Uh, I don't, you know, uh, but she's really kind of used her voice very well. She's got a foundation um, bringing on, uh, you know, she cares hugely about women's rights. She's written books about, you know, Eve was framed. Uh, and I just admire the way that she has used the law in a positive way so that people see the portrayal. And she's managed to do it with with three kids um, and has kept her because um, she's you know m- much older than myself but she's kept her voice going and recently um, she's been involved in bringing over to England the Afghan judges you know Afghanistan which of course the West left in such a hurry it, it is a mess you know girls aren't going to school uh, and there are a variety of things going on there because, of course, now it's under Taliban rule. But the lawyers who are working there, particularly the women judges, have been scared of their lives because, you know, under the new leadership, things aren't as they were. And she's been involved in that even. You know, imagine this woman who has spanned over 30 years in a career. So I, I really admire her as, as a role model um, in the main. I mean, there are the role models, but in terms of sort of black Women, I would probably say, Ernesta Weeks, Queen's Council, um, Baroness Scotland, uh, Linda Dobbs. Um, but I've just found that, you know, Baroness Kennedy has carried on and she seems to have an awful lot of energy, even, um, you know, at a mature age. And is involved in like loads of fun things like the Wow Women of the World Festival and kind of like, you know, the, the um, John F. Kennedy Foundation, they hold a human rights festival, which I spoke at too with her about the uh, laws of unintended consequences. She just keeps her energy going and I don't know where she gets it from. So I really admire her and I think, gosh, if I can achieve any of the things that uh, she's achieved, uh, I just think she's, she's just bloody brilliant. Um, and so that's why. Ah, well, what a perfect ringing endorsement. And I can safely say you definitely have achieved quite a lot. So, uh, and we can't not finish by talking about not only your amazing podcast guest, and I thoroughly enjoyed learning more about your story, but you're also a wonderful podcast Ah. host. And you have your own podcast series, Talking Law. And you've had a variety of incredible guests from the likes of Judge Robert Rinder to Lady Hale, The Secret Bannister, Gina Miller, many, 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 many more. So what is the focus of the podcast? And what do you hope for your audience to learn from your guests? Oh, thank you, Rob. Well, you're on my list, so you've got to come on my podcast too, um, because I have a little, I have a little black book of, of people um, that, that uh, I try to get. Um, so yeah, keep time. Um, I suppose that podcast um, I started. I didn't know if anybody would listen to it, but I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to learn about why you know a relatively young lawyer started her own law firm, Jodie Hill? You know, 
following her nervous breakdown and how she's passionate about well-being. And I know she's been on this podcast too. Um, and then I thought, what, what, what about other of the established people in law or those who have just been affected by the law or have brought cases in law like Gina Miller? And what does that mean? And, uh, you know, and to hear their voices. So the podcast really is about a variety of things, really. It's about career advice. It's about well-being. It's about resilience. Uh, and it's about failure, how people um, get up when they've failed, you know, or feel that they've failed. And and really what success means and, and what careers mean, you know, uh, um, progress. So that's what the podcast is about, really. And it's just gone crazy because there's all sorts of people listening. I mean, I don't know, maybe you're more strategic than me, but my podcast is listened to in about 12 countries. It's got 150,000 listeners. I don't know who's listening. They send me messages and it's a positive feel. You know, I'm not cross-examining people necessarily. I am with some, uh, you know, some politicians. It's apolitical, um, but it's not really... Um, you know, trying to be harmful is trying to inspire and is trying to go, right, if you're sitting in your bedroom in somewhere that you don't know any lawyers or you don't know anything about the law, could you just listen to the free podcast and hear the story of David Lammy or hear the story of Tunde or hear the story of Rob Rinder? You know, he's a huge success. He's on telly, you know, but do people really know the backstory? Uh, of him and, you know, why he left the bar, how he met Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, his Jewish background and, you know, his grandfather. And, uh, yeah, they're quite emotional stories, really. So I'd say it's probably more sort of Terry Wogan um, and uh, than, and Parkinson than, than, uh, than Paxman. Um, but I wanted people to hear the voices of those who perhaps are not necessarily the traditional success stories or the normal leaders who have come the traditional routes. It, it's actually just hearing a different narrative and hoping that, you know, one might get a bit of advice about careers, well-being, resilience, or whatever it is from it. So thank you um, for um, for listening to it. And so it's not it's not about the great and the good. There are loads of people on there that people have never heard of, uh, you know, like comedians, like just in-house lawyers talking about how they became in-house lawyers. So um, that's why I started that, really. I just thought it, there was something in the stories of others that were really powerful and might just inspire, you know, a couple of people, then great. Well, we are all about inspiration on the Legally Speaking podcast, and we fully endorse and say wholeheartedly your podcast is amazing. We'd encourage people to listen to it, check it out, subscribe, download, give it five stars. It deserves all of the praise because, folks, like I said before, time is the one thing we yes. can't get back. And Sally dedicating time to bring these incredible voices to you and diverse voices. It's not just people on the telly no, no. window and understanding their story, <laughs> but people, you know, it's, it's real diversity practicing what, um, you know, Sally is very passionate about by giving everybody a voice. So, um, and talking of voices, and before we wrap up, we must also talk about your speaking because you are also a TEDx <laughs> speaker. So can you tell us more about your speaking engagements and uh, yeah, a little bit more about your, your, your overall speaking? Um, well, um, uh, thank you. Well, uh, so I did a, TED, a TEDx talk in Swansea. I'd never been to Swansea before. You know, it was really nice, the stadium there. And TED, of course, is the platform for sharing ideas. And, uh, you know, anyone could look at TED.com and, and type in my name to hear my speech but I had the opportunity a few years ago to do one and I was scared Rob I really thought oh my gosh you know I'm not good enough I'm not sure and so I 
then declined. And then um, then you have to resubmit. And then, of course, COVID happened. And I just, I love TED Talks. I think there's always a TED Talk on a subject to inspire anyone. You know, one of my favorite ones is uh, Brené Brown on vulnerability, uh, because we never used to talk about our failures or our difficulties or our ill children or, you know, the, the, we, we never used to do that. And certainly I never used to do that. So I've learned a lot by watching TED Talks. And so when I had the chance to do one, uh, I thought, okay, yeah. I mean, I absolutely was petrified and um, it was quite an experience. And my TED Talk is called um, Can Love Conquer Hate? And uh, and the idea worth sharing is about proactiveness. Um, what would happen if we were more proactive than reactive? I don't want to give it away. But it was a fantastic experience, but quite scary. And I thought, wow, I can't believe I've actually done a TED talk. Um, and there were really, you know, amazing people there on the day, other speakers. Um, but it's a tricky one because you've got an audience, but the audience there are not really your audience. So I love keynoting. I love training yeah. and I love doing workshops. Um, and, you know, it gets me out of court. I teach advocacy to barristers um, who are coming, you know, trainees and new practitioners. So it's a step up from that really. But um, yeah, the TED was a was a different because the audience are there, but actually, it's the twenty two point seven million people who watch TED talks who are really your audience. So, I, I was I did feel out of my comfort zone, but hey, you know, nothing was ever achieved um, uh, uh, in uh, in comfort. Um, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed it, and I would implore anybody who would like to do one if they get the opportunity and can submit and be accepted to go for it. Um, I, I think they're a great platform. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and I'm just a big advocate. I say it all the time on the show, folks, just do it. The comfort zone is great, yeah. but nothing ever grows there. It's so, so true. And what got you here will not get you there. And I love your thirst for continuous learning and driving yourself. MBE, sure, what next? And it's just been a whole inspiring journey and discussion today. And no doubt lots of people are going to be super interested and <laughs> wanting to hear this. But what piece of advice would you give to any aspiring barristers interested in criminal employment, you know, the areas of law you've touched on, what's that one piece of killer advice you'd want to leave people with? I, I would say uh, prepare, prepare, prepare um, for um, the path ahead. You know, law is a marathon, it's not a sprint and you're not going to get there tomorrow. So whether it's my areas or any other areas or in indeed in business, prepare for for what's coming ahead. But also, if I can have a caveat, be prepared to be agile and adaptable because, you know, when things come that you don't expect, you've got to be able to deal with it and handle it, you know. Uh, and so that's the advice I would give really. Prepare and have a look around the areas you want to go in uh, as well. Look for people that, you know, you might want to admire or emulate, see what they did and can you do it a bit better or, or kind of mimic what they do. Um, but look at the areas because, you know, criminal law, there are all sorts of issues going on, um, equally in employment. Be prepared, but allow yourself to be adaptable. You know, and I always say this, forgive me, but there are many routes to the destination that you might want to get to, you know, as aspiring lawyers or aspiring business people, whatever stage you're at. And the motorway is not always the route there. You know, the country route is just as good, 
might be scenic, it might take you longer, but you will get there. So I think if you're starting out and I was giving that advice, those are the things I would say. I'm sorry it's not just one advice, but I do think that sometimes we get so focused, but we need to be allow ourselves um, to adapt to those external factors that come in that we don't expect because we've prepared, but we're not prepared for anything else that might come. And I don't know if you agree, Robert, particularly even in business, you know, those factors that come and you're like, where did that come from? Now I need to, you know, the pandemic, who, who was planning for that and preparing for it? It's, it's, it's so true. And I, I, I say this, own your own journey. You can be inspired by others and their journeys, but your journey is your journey. And it may not be straight down the motorway within two hours. It may be around those country lanes like Sally referenced there, but there's only one of you. Own your journey, have the right people around you, and you will definitely, definitely get there. So I 100% agree with you in such wise words. And it's just been a, an episode full of, <laughs> full of wisdom. And if our listeners would like to learn more about your books, podcasts, Women in Law UK, or just general, you know, anything connected to basically everything you're up to what's the best way for them to contact you feel free to shout out any of your social media and website links we'll also share them with this oh episode right uh, oh god i'm not very good at advertising anything uh, i'm on linkedin so you can always send me a request with a message on linkedin i'm on twitter uh, at sally penny one uh, so you can follow what i'm doing sometimes it's just pictures of my dog i'm afraid um or a beach um but my books are all on um uh, sally penny author and also womeninthelawuk.com and Women in the Law UK is has a LinkedIn page of its own volition. You can follow there. There are newsletters, annual dinners um, and webinars coming up. There's GC conference and all sorts coming up once the legal term reopens. So you can just find out all that information on the LinkedIn page for Women in the Law UK or the website, which is womeninthelawuk.com. Well, thank you ever so much, Sally. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I feel weird saying wishing you lots of continued success with your career, given what you've already achieved. But from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, thanks. An absolute mission, million rather. But for now, over and out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, the Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com for the link to join our community there. Over and out.